This is, uh, after a dark room, this is going to be the second episode basically in a row where I have no clue what we'll do for music. Good point. I, I had, I put no music at all into the a dark room episode because I felt like that was kind of like that there was no music in the game. Well, uh, for this one, let's just get some Gregorian chants going. Welcome back to another episode of The Short Game. And uh, this is going to be a really interesting and kind of different episode for us this week. Uh, So thanks for joining us. I am your host, Reagan Kelly. And I am joined in person for once by my bro host and real life twin brother, Shane. How are you doing, Shane? Uh, I'm doing great. And of course, we are... It's good to see you in the flesh. It is good to see you, Shane. Face to face. Like, like, you know, real life friends. And of course, we are joined this week by Laura Nash. Uh, Laura, who has been with us many times, and we've now decided she's officially an actual host. I've been upgraded, guys. You have. Um, So thank you so much for joining us again, Laura. The check is in the mail. (laughs) Lovely. That's what I'm really in this podcast for, the money. All the money that this podcast makes. Mm -hmm. This week, we're talking about interactive fiction. And this is actually a pretty different episode for us this week. Usually we pick a single game and we talk about it usually in some depth. This week we're gonna be doing things pretty differently and we're gonna talk about an entire genre. Uh, Interactive fiction, uh, which is also often called by other names, things like uh, choose your own adventures or text uh, adventures, text adventures or text-based games. There's a lot of different names for these and there's a lot of different styles that these games are written in. Uh, It's one of the oldest styles of video games and so it's got a really interesting history that we'll be talking about a bit today. I guess we could start off by just talking about some of those different kinds of games. For me, when you say the word text adventure, or we talk about interactive fiction, my mind immediately goes not just to the specific kind of game, but to a specific company, company that basically created the genre back in, I believe, the 70s, and that's Infocom. Although the very first interactive fiction game was not an Infocom game, it was Zork. Adventure is actually first, correct? Exactly right. Adventure. Thank you. You're right. So Adventure, which is the precursor to Zork, I think Zork was the first one that I heard about. Uh, Adventure was from 1976, the original Colossal Cave Adventure. And this game was played on mainframe computers. And basically it invented the genre of the text-based adventure game. And in this kind of a game, you are moving around in a space by doing things like typing, go north, enter. And then it describes what you find when you have gone north. This is a, it's a kind of game that I think at its outset was inspired by things like Dungeons and Dragons, which were also gaining popularity around that time. And so the Colossal Cave Adventure um, and its sort of imitators, uh, a lot of them, including Zork, uh, had those kinds of genre elements to them as well. If you think of them as a virtual DM, a lot of times it's you make a decision and then the game lets you know what the environment, the possible actions are very much like if you had someone in person who is actually your dungeon master would be detailing the area, playing the non-player characters, NPCs. Basically, the interactive fixture um, category replaces that real life person with text. You know, when you put it that way, I I think of it in a little bit of a different way, because now I'm imagining 
kind of the inevitability of this genre because there was a programmer out there who didn't have enough people to play Dungeons and Dragons with. And <laughs> and uh, so he decided to, to 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 write his adventure out for for in pure code for everyone out there to SSH into. And I mean, I completely sympathize with that person because if you create this beautiful world and you create this wonderful wonderful format, you want as many people as possible to play your campaign. That's what I think of as the core of a lot of these text adventures. You create the world, you create the environment, you create the possibilities, and then you set it loose on all the players to actually explore what you've put out for them. That's awesome. And the real innovation behind adventure or colossal cave adventure was the text parser. Um, most video games up to that time had been controlled by you know using a small joystick or hitting arrow- arrows on your keyboard or you know some simple set of inputs like that. Um, but Adventure really revolutionized things by allowing you to input your commands just by typing out what kind of resembled natural English sentences. And this is something that's only improved with time. At the time, uh, Colossal Cave Adventure, which kind of simulates uh, exploring a really large system of caves that contain all sorts of different things from realistic problems like running out of batteries in your lantern or falling into pits all the way up to more um, more fanciful things like encountering dragons and other monsters yeah i think the original colossal cave adventure was based on an actual cave i think i read at one point there's a there's a cave that's called the colossal cave and uh, it's like a real cave somewhere out and he included all the sort of highlight elements of this cave as well as throwing in like elves Exactly. That you might that you might have to kill, and that game limited you to pretty simple sentences. You know, short words, commands like "go north." Yeah, I think it was like a a, a subject or like a like a, a noun verb. Yeah, very uh, simple, like two word sentence thing. Only allowed you to type in very short sentences, um, but it spawned a genre. And that particular game, Colossal Cave Adventure, eventually became the Zork games. It was too large by the time it was sort of finalized to be released as a single game on anything except a mainframe computer. It just was too large. But it was broken up into several parts and became Zork, which was a hugely influential game. I think that's still the most widely known text adventure game. I might be wrong about that. Yes. And if anybody is curious about it, there's actually a great... um interview with the creator of Zork that is written as a text-based adventure where you must type in different commands to see the different um, responses from the interview. (laughs) So if anyone's curious, you can search Zork interview text adventure, be the first result. It's quite wonderful. You hear about the backstory and also get a little bit of the flavor of Zork without playing it. That sounds amazing. I'll try and link that in the show notes. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I, I'm kind of curious about how these kinds of games came about. My first exposure to the genre was actually at a garage sale. And at this garage sale, I found a copy of... Um, at this garage sale, I found a copy of Planetfall, which was a kind of a sci-fi adventure from Infocom. And I had no way to actually play this game at the time, because inside of it was like an extra large sized floppy disk that was not compatible with my computer. Uh, But what it did have in there was all of the feelies. Have you ever played a game that had feelies? It had a card that was like a, the feelies were 
uh, something that the Infocom company, which was the main company that successfully released all of the most popular adventure games. And I should say that the the commercial era for text adventures was the 1980s, and they were coming out on machines like the Commodore 64, the Apple II, other primarily text interface-based computers. Um, and you would go down to your store and buy one of these text adventures, and it would come with these feelies, the uh, great stuff that Shane was describing there. Yeah. What else came with Planetfall? So, Planetfall came with uh, some postcards from various planets around the galaxy. Um, it came with a card that identified you as like a member of the Space Patrol uh, that I put into my wallet and it stayed in my wallet until it literally fell apart. I think it was in my wallet even before I had a driver's license in my wallet. So uh, <laughs> it, it really got some, some wear and tear on there. Uh, and I think there was a few other things in there. I think there was like an employee onboarding guide. Yeah, and, or and like some, some kind of things. forms. But the, the thing about those is that they served two purposes. One was that these objects would kind of just increase the immersion of the game. And in a text-based game, that's really important. Yeah, because... you know, it's, it's, a fun, it's a fun way to kind of improve your experience of the game. And the other thing that they did was in some games, they served as sort of a rudimentary DRM. Because in some games, the game itself would reference the objects in the box with the game. I, I'm pretty sure that the game Bureaucracy, which as it turns out was actually written by Douglas Adams, had a stack of paperwork for you in the box. And it, the game itself was kind of in the sort of same style as the movie Brazil. It was all about kind of a post-apocalyptic bureaucracy grind. It was, a that's one that I still have never gotten a chance to play, but it really, Seems like it ought to be right up my alley because Douglas Adams and Infocom. Speaking of Douglas Adams, real quick, did either of you guys ever play the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Uh, yes, I played. I played it, but I didn't complete it. And I, I don't think, think anyone completes it without cheating. No, but um, <laughs> it's an infamously hard. If, speaking of Douglas Adams, the um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text-based adventure game is one of the first ones I was exposed to after King's Quest, which I also found on a floppy disk, which I was able to play. Um, the Hitchhiker's Guide is just, it's as hard as the novel would make, you know, makes it seem. The universe does not lend itself to survival. I remember when I tried playing it, I couldn't get out of bed. Like most, a lot of games <laughs> do start you off getting out of bed. You know, the character wakes up. But in this one, the character wakes up with a horrible hangover, and the very first puzzle is how to get out of bed before the Earth is destroyed. <laughs> I made it all the way to a ship where I spent about two hours trying to get the babblefish into my ear. That is when I dropped the game. But I think that um, it's just one example of the many, many universes in text-based adventures. Go ahead about uh, bureaucracy. Get in your story. No, oh, that's about all there is to it. It's a it's a game I haven't actually had the pleasure of playing. But the fact that a famous writer like Douglas Adams uh, was involved in these games, I think, does kind of tell you something about this style of of game, which is that it really is kind of a coming together of writing and of gameplay, and all the games that I really love today in the genre, I honestly really do consider as both a game and literature, the, the writing is 
extremely important to these games in a way that it isn't always to other kinds of games. Of course, I think writing is important to all games, but in these, it's so front and center. You know, the uh, I think the oldest, uh, I saw an ad once for Infocom games that said, you know, our games use the most state-of-the-art graphics engine ever devised, your mind. <laughs> and it's true, this kind of game really is all about the writing, which makes it a perfect genre for people who enjoy that, that, that way of getting into games. Now, we said we were breaking this type of games, interactive fiction, kind of broadly down into two categories, and Infocom's games really fall into that first category, uh, Parser IF. Uh, interactive fiction that you type commands to usually in plain English sentences describing what you want to do and then the game responds but there's the other f sort of category as well and um, I, I think the easiest way to explain it is to say that they're a bit like the choose your own adventure novels and in fact I think you could kind of count those novels as a, a type of interactive fiction it's it's a book you read it and you decide on what actions you want to take and rather than typing in your actions you're choosing them from a sort of a menu a sort of a selection of choices right when i was um writing games um and i was looking at a lot of other scripts to try to find a way forward for um structuring i found the term storylet which is that Depending on, you get a bit of flavor text at the top, you get the narrative, you get the story, and the player gets to choose. You choose from a defined list, and then the from there the interactive fiction branches. Um, you, depending on what of those, you know, we used to say four to 12, uh, because if you have fewer than four, people feel like they're getting gypped. If you have more than 12, people feel like they are missing out on a large branch of the story. Hmm. Uh, it depends on... Um, the type of game and the environment you've discovered. Also, you might see different unlocks. If you have this quality in the person you've created so far, you might be able to unlock additional storylets or story structures. Um, but you basically make a decision, the story branches, and um, the nice thing about this from a writer's perspective is the world can be a little bit broader than what you might see in uh, Parser IF, because in Parser you have to deal with the environment that's there. In the choose your own adventure style, you are defining the environment as you go. The player has a little bit more control over the environment because the decisions you make decide what happens next. Um, from the, the Parser IF, you have a much more structured world. It's a, it's a sandbox environment very much. You have a very defined world. The choose your own adventure style invites the uh, player to create the world with you. And you can create the world with the player because you have that definition. The player can't choose anything out of five or six or four to 12, as I said, um, different branching narratives. But the player, you know, it's not so huge that the player won't get ahead of you mm -hmm. as a writer. So that's how I like to think about it. It's a sandbox versus a create your own with the um, the creator of the story. I think my favorite um, example of this is one we've talked about pretty recently. I kind of, I kind of would put a lot of those Telltale games, like we just recently did an episode on uh, The Walking Dead. I would definitely put that into this category. Definitely, and um, they have a huge back library of different IPs and different um, types of games. But it always is that choice where you can choose. You know, it, it's very. 
it, it very heavily influenced the RPG narrative. Like you can see this in Mass Effect where you get to choose what your next sentence is. The If you scale back all the graphics and all the shooting <laughs> and all the other mechanics, um, if you just take that linguistics engine, that's what's powering the Telltale games. That's what's powering this choose-your-own-adventure style of story. And also in that in that vein, um, there's been a really big explosion recently with a tool called Twine that lets you create games really quickly and easily that are in this sort of style. So you've probably seen references to things like, uh, I know one that's made a lot of news recently is Depression Quest, um, but there's dozens of others. Um, there's uh, We'll have some links to some really interesting games in this genre in the show notes, but uh, this is actually a scene that's really vibrant today because more and more, there are tools to create these games easily without having to have you know a huge art department and dozens of developers. A single bedroom coder can create these games on their own, and it lets them create really interesting things really quickly. Definitely, when we talk about uh, kind of the the legacy of the Infocom style parser, IF uh, we'll talk about Inform and the the entire language that was developed to create these games. Pretty much everything we've talked about so far have been these historical games, which are really interesting, but they're also, you know, most folks are at least basically aware that there were these games that were primarily text-driven, but they think of them as relics of a time when computers weren't really capable of showing complex graphics. And most folks who play games today probably aren't aware of the present-day interactive fiction scene and the kinds of games that people are still creating in this genre and with these kinds of tools. And there's actually a lot of this stuff still coming out every year. Uh, Interactive fiction went through its commercial phase with companies like Infocom releasing stuff. Um, But as that kind of began to go away, people didn't let go of this style. And new tools and new developers came in and have started making interactive fiction more for love of the genre and out of just sort of an interest in creating these simple but really fascinating games. And there are definitely things that I think it's still going because there are things that this genre does better than other games do. If you like games that are experimental, which I do, and if you like games that are story-driven, which I do, and if you uh, like games that give you kind of a, an interesting world and are focused on the writing, then this is a genre that I think appeals to a lot of people. So you can you can dig in and find stuff that's the result of uh, contests that happen every year. There's a, there's a very popular interactive fiction contest every year. IF Comp, we'll have a link yep. in the show notes. Another really nice thing for these games is that they tend to be pretty short. Even the classic Infocom games really weren't that long. And a lot of the games that you'd see made today that are coming out of these contests are designed to be played in a very brief amount of time. So another reason that I think they're great for this show. I mean, I like to think of them as the ultimate indie because often this really is the results of one creator, especially when you get uh, Twine, Story Nexus, these online tools you really get a single writer who dreams up a world and thinks about how you can explore it. And there's no outside tools you need as a creator to make this world. So it's a very um, artisanal auteur type of format. It's more fun than that sounds, but (laughs) it's, um, it's a very, if you've ever really wondered what's going on in one person's mind, this is a genre for you. 
Yeah. And the tools to create these games are generally free and really simple to pick up, even for somebody without a lot of programming skills. So for example, we were just talking about Twine, which allows you to create a game with almost zero code and also you know, wrap in some things if you want to with basic coding skills like JavaScript. Um, and then there's uh, Inform, which lets you write parser-based interactive fiction with code that really closely resembles English. You know, your code would actually look like, you know, the forest is a room. There are 12 objects here. You know, one object is a forest stream. Another object is a branch. Another object is a frog. Like you basically just write in English and describe what your surroundings are following some basic rules. And it'll turn that description that you write into a playable interactive fiction. I mean, hell, for Choose Your Own Adventure, I've seen people use SurveyMonkey like sur uh, survey creator tools. And I've seen people use Twitter where they might have two different links and you click to a different tweet <laughs> and then you, the tweet the tweet you click on has a different link on it. So it's really anything where you have the opportunity to stick two links on a page, you can create your own adventure. Now that's something I haven't heard about and I've got to, I've got to see this. I've got to find the uh, interactive tweet adventure. There's been two ones that I can think of in recent memory. One has been um, where you can click on those links, as I mentioned. Another one is where the creator was standing by, and as people uh, tweeted commands at him, he showed different illustrations of the world. Um, <laughs> it was pretty spectacular. Um, That's really cool. He kept it up for about two months until people solved the puzzle, and then it was archived. But I'll, I'll see if I can dig it up. That's incredible. Retweet this adventure. Yes. So would you guys like to talk about some different games that you think you'd like to recommend or would you like to talk more about the Infocom or sorry, interactive fiction scene today or, or, or what? Let's talk about some actual games, games that people are going to be able to go out and play right now if they're interested in text adventures or interactive fiction generally. First off, if you're interested in the history of the genre, one of the real strengths of this is that you can get your hands on almost all of these games for essentially free or very little money right now. So if you are interested in the history of the genre and you want to play some of these older things, um, the first Zork is available for free online, as is the Colossal Cave Adventure. To be perfectly honest, it's not where I'd recommend starting because I think it's a little more of a historical curiosity than a really fun game to play today. But Infocom's games are a lot of fun, and those are really easy to get your hands on right now if you have an iOS device because you can go on the App Store and look for The Lost Treasures of Infocom, which is a free download and includes the first Zork as well as I think one other game. And then all the other games are available as very inexpensive in-app purchases. So if you want to play uh, bureaucracy, or if you want to play Planetfall, or if you want to play any of the other games that Infocom released over their several year history, you can download those on your iPhone or your iPad right now. And it includes digital scans of all the feelies that we were talking about and uh, a pretty useful like set of shortcuts to allow somebody who's not familiar with interactive fiction to enter commands really quickly without having to do yeah, a they, lot of typing. They came with something at the time, I think were called Invisiclues. Oh, which yeah. were um, like clues. Am I right? Clues written in invisible ink or something you had to like look at through a little red lens. Was that the way? No, it they gave you, they gave you an actual pen and, and uh, some are black light pens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you, or okay. you would actually have a black light pen that would shine and then suddenly you would see uh, the text light up. It's like a walkthrough, but like with like written in invisible ink and you had to like, 
oh my gosh. But that is now built into a lot of these games. Uh, you can just shout for help and, and help will arrive. Yeah, Lost Treasures of Infocom includes all of the Invisi clues and uh, you don't have to get your special mm-hmm. pen out. It will just let you, if you have a question, uh, it shows you a list of common places where people get stuck and then it'll have several levels of spoileriness for each hint. So if you are truly stuck, uh, you can look at the first hint and it'll be something very vague. And then if that doesn't help you, you can look at the second hint and so on until the fourth or fifth hint will usually be something like, just go over there and pick up this object and then move over to this other room and try this other thing. Um, But it makes it really easy to try these games out without feeling like you're going to get totally stuck or lost. Yeah, and I I would definitely advise someone who's getting started with the genre to not not quit because you're having trouble with a puzzle. Just go ahead and and uh, and use those invisi clues. They were in the they were in the box of the original. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the the game that uh, you, you brought Planetfall back up, and I would say that's not a bad one to get started with. Just to give you kind of an idea, it's a game where uh, you are kind of an ensign two hundredth class or something like that, and and you're on this you're alone on this spaceship, uh, but you're not truly alone because there's a robot with you, and this game. At the time it was released, uh, the robot that follows you around in this game was the most complicated, interactive, non-player character that had ever been released in a video game. And so I think it is actually a game that's worth going back and looking at because this is a genre where the interactivity with characters is something that sometimes gets sidestepped you know, in favor of the puzzles, but when it's done really well, it's done in just some, it does some things that other genres can't. So um, in in Planetfall, you've got the little robot whose name slips my mind. Uh, And one of my first favorite games in this genre is one that's all about the character. And that's one called Galatea. Have anybody here played Galatea? I have. Awesome. Okay. That's an amazing game. Galatea is a newer game. So If you're wanting to check out these games, almost all of them are available. I'll have some links in the show notes, but one of the amazing things about this scene, this community of interactive fiction writers and players on the internet, is that they've created a really wonderful website, the Interactive Fiction Database, the IFDB. It's kind of interactive fiction's answer to the IMDB for movies and TV shows. So you can search there for a game and usually find a link to play it or download it right from the page. Galatea is a game by Emily Short, who's a real powerhouse in interactive fiction today, and she writes a really interesting blog, Uh, she's a great person to follow on Twitter, and she's written dozens of interactive fiction games, uh, some of which are really amazing and sort of changed the course of the genre. Galatea is a really interesting one in that it kind of uh, simulates an interactive conversation. So most of these games kind of have you exploring a space and finding objects and exploring puzzles. This is a game that's not based on puzzles at all. It's based entirely on conversation. And it's something that you don't see in any other game. It's like an entire game that's a conversation with another person. And not just any person. It's a, just like the actual Galatea. It's a talking piece of art. The game is a talking piece of art, but the character Galatea within the game is a statue come to life. And you're talking to this statue come to life about the artist that created her, about 
herself, about her thoughts and feelings, about what it's like to be here in this gallery. And it's very, it's not only very interactive, you can ask about anything and topics can come up. It's also very strongly branching. So um, you can get into a, a, a huge variety of different conversations and you know, depending on the way the conversation flows, the story can be completely different. And I think in some of the other games we've talked about, um, seeing yourself in the game, that moral dilemma or that uh, questioning of how you feel about your uh, role as a game player, how implicit are you and how the story's moving. I think that Galatea in particular and a lot of interactive fiction takes that to the forefront um, because your decisions are driving the story. You so strongly identify with the main character that um, often it becomes an opportunity for self-reflection, for um, kind of contemplating the nature of art and video games and your relationship to it. Um, again, it's more fun than I'm making it sound. Yeah. I keep making this sound like an academic exercise, but um, I think something I enjoy. Well, this is a game that's incredibly academically interesting. This is a this is an NPC that is I've never encountered another NPC in any game that even approached the level of complexity that's found in this game. I'm there sure are, there are a billion theses written on Galatea. Yeah, there, I'm sure there are. There's there's hundreds of and hundreds of different things that the, that it, that the character can say. Uh, the character keeps track of the state of the conversation. Um, so things that you said earlier, or you know, you might you might get her in a bad mood, and her answers are going to change based on that. So. Um, that's, I think, one of the most fun non-game games that I've ever played, and, and it's an absolute unquestioning classic of the genre. And you can play through it from beginning to end in just a few minutes, but you'll want to play it probably dozens of times, because each time you have this same conversation with Galatea, you can take it down different avenues, and she will respond totally differently. We, we, we mentioned how much interactive fiction has influenced other games, um, Telltale Games, which you brought up earlier, um, the person who's responsible for um, the linguistic AI of Telltale has written about how Galatea shaped his um, algorithm for AI. It kind of allowed him to branch out what was possible in those games. So you, the really, you mentioned community as well. It's so tight-knit. There's not a lot of people playing in this space that every small incremental jump has a huge impact on what you see in RPGs and even these um, beautiful um, the Telltale games like Walking Dead, where there is a very strong written element, but it's also paid through animation. Um, a lot of writers pay a lot of attention to interactive fiction. So if you want to see where things are moving, I think it's wise to start looking at that text-based adventure as well. Yeah, that is really interesting. These sort of this sort of is a game maker's genre of games. If you're really interested in game design and in how games are made and the kind of the the theory behind the reasons that people make the choices they do when designing games, this is a really interesting space to look at. Um, Galatea is a great place to start. Let's talk it, about some other Emily Short games because I'm still super excited about all of the games that I've played by her. Oh yeah, she's super great. She's definitely, in fact, I'll have a link in the show notes to her page on the Interactive Fiction Database. And it's actually a really good starting place for anybody because um, 
not only does it list all the games she's ever made, most of which are really interesting and kind of fun to play, but also it'll list all of the reviews and ratings she's given to other games, which is a great jumping off point to find interesting games. But before we delve into her real quick, I want to give a, a plug for a platform. And I, um, I am the voice of the iOS gamer because that's I that's what I play most of the time. I'm not exclusive, mm-hmm. um, but Frots, um, F-R-O-T-Z, is a really good way to play these games on your phone when you're out in the world, when you're in a short game type of mood. Um, the nice thing about Frots is it comes with a lot of built-in games, but you can download any game from that giant database, including the Emily Short games. So if you are primarily a mobile gamer or you can't dedicate the uh, time on a desktop or tablet environment, take a look at Frots and um, try some of the Emily Short games. You won't be disappointed. Absolutely. I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Frots is an amazing platform. They just really put a lot of polish and effort into that uh, into that tool. And you can use it to play almost any game that we've discussed, pretty much anything that shows up on the Interactive Fiction database, or at least any parser IF. So I started on Frots playing Child's Play, um, which is a game where you're a baby. Um, and then I started looking at the database, the IFDB. Um, so if you want to talk about more Emily short games, um, you'll get a basic library, but it's open to everything you could possibly download. Yeah. And the people that make Frots chose some really good representative games to include. So when you download that app, it's already loaded up with at least a dozen really good games that you can play. Um, uh, Galatea is on there by default and you can jump right into it, but it also includes, uh, at least one other game by Emily Short, that's Savoir Faire. It's a pretty hard game, so it's not necessarily one that I'd recommend as your first interactive fiction. Um, it is one of my favorites. That's, a, I think, a, a beautiful game for world building. It sort of takes place in this alternate uh, historical France, and the magic of this game is very interesting. These, these kinds of games can have puzzles that are not even the kind of thing you think of, when you think of this kind of puzzle, you know, go find the key. Oh, okay, now I'm going to find the place I can use the key. In this game, um, you have the ability to magically link objects together. So if I link a door to a teapot and I open the lid on the teapot, then the door will open. Uh, and, and that magic is kind of usable on any number of objects in the game. And what's really brilliant about this is that it's written... Uh, it's created so well that almost any conceivable link that you can think of between two objects, you know, will work. So if I link the hands on a clock to something that can spin, you know, that thing will spin in time with the hands of the clock, etc. And, and the puzzles that come out of this are really incredible. And as you explore this, you know, banner house that you're exploring, you know, you're, you're uncovering the story of the character and so on. It's, it's a great game and it is a little hard and it is a little bit longer than some of these other games, but it really also is one of my favorites. Another good place to start that fortunately is a game that you can download on your iPhone for free, uh, is a game called Dreamhold by Andrew Plotkin. And this is one that I would definitely recommend as your first interactive fiction game if you've never played one like it, because Andrew Plotkin created this game entirely for people playing their very first game. It's included in Frots, but he also has his 
own separate app that you can download. So if you go on the app store on your iPhone or iPad and search for the dream hold, that's, you know, dream hold all one word, then you'll find this game and it includes an interactive narrator that describes the world to you, but also tells you how to play the game and tells you about the types of commands that the parser can accept. Uh, it's really the most fully fleshed out tutorial for interactive fiction that I've ever seen. So if you've never played an interactive fiction game before, Andrew Plotkin's The Dreamhold will teach you the entire genre in ways that are really gonna translate easily to other parser-based interactive fiction. If you've learned to play that game, then you'll have an enormous leg up on playing any other game that you might play in, in Frots or any of the other interpreters that we might talk about. Oh, um, Andrew Plotkin, by the way. So we talked about Emily Short as kind of a giant of the genre, really influential. Andrew Plotkin's another really important person in interactive fiction. Uh, he, he made one of my other favorite games, which is called Spider and Web. Spider and Web is a, is a game where you're actually a spy being interrogated, you're being tortured. And the person who's torturing you is asking you questions about how you broke into this secret, you know, shadowy organization's headquarters. And so he'll ask you, how did you get past the guards, for example? And then it drops you into a, into a scenario where you have to try things to get past the guards. And each time you try things, the interrogator will laugh and say, ha, no, that's not how you did it because we saw, you know, we, you didn't leave any tracks in the snow, so I know you can't have gone down that corridor. And then yeah, you it, have to try the same thing, but try to avoid leaving tracks in the snow, that kind of thing. So It's definitely an interesting one, and, and it plays with uh, sort of the unreliable narrator is kind of brought into that game in a way that I, I don't think I had exactly seen before. Uh, it's a, that one's a really interesting experiment, and it's very, very successful. Another game that has a really fun play with the narrator and just sort of a silly uh, way, is Lost Pig. Uh, Lost Pig is a great game. You're some sort of orc. And so it's a, it's, it's a game that everything is said to you in the sort of voice of this orc. And it's like, me, me lose pig. Oh no, you know, can't find, looking around. You know, very kind of, I'm not explaining that part of it very well because I can't imitate the hilarious... Uh, kind of voice of the character, but the whole game is played in the voice of this incredibly stupid, um, you know, Cretan who has lost his pig, <laughs> and, and you're trying to find the pig. That game does work really well because, in a sense, when you're playing interactive fiction, a lot of the times the commands you're typing are these very simple two or three word sentences like, "Pig lost, boss say that, grunk fault, say grunk <laughs> forget about closing gate, maybe boss right, grunk not remember forgetting." But maybe just grunk forget. Boss say grunk go find pig. Bring it back. Him say if grunk not bring back pig. Not bring back grunk either. <laughs> grunk like working at pig farm. So now grunk need find pig. And then you <laughs> That's grunk. the introduction to the and game. And then you grunk find pig. Grunk find pig. <laughs> End of game. That's an awesome, actually that's a really fun game. And actually a really easy one if you want to try something that's a little, has puzzles but not really challenging ones. Ones that you can probably get through even if it's your first interactive fiction. Really fun game. Grunk think pig went this way, but hard to tell. Because not, not as bright at night as at day. <laughs> For a very easy uh, choose your own adventure style game, um, 
Choice of the Dragon, um, actually the company that makes all of those games has a, a large series of quick, um, under an hour, uh, choose your own adventure style games. Choice of the Dragon, you choose a dragon, uh, you run around, you do things. And it, some of the questions include things like, isn't it a little sexist to always kidnap princesses? <laughs> and you can choose things like, you dare questions my, my actions and... Maybe, but tradition demands that dragons kidnap princesses, even if that is sexist. <laughs> I'm um, with tradition. <laughs> out with tradition. Um, and one of um, my favorite answers for that one is actually, I'll have you know that I make a careful point of alternating between princes and princesses, but it happened to be time for a princess. So um, I really appreciate those two turn adventure that has um, a tongue squarely in cheek. Um, if you're looking for a free, cheap, um, quick choose your own adventure style game, that one is one you can't go wrong with. Wordplay and irony and other just humor, something that interactive fiction just can do so much better than other styles of game because you know, it, it, broad physical comedy is easy for, you know, for video games. They typically have a lot in common with animation, but where else do you see that kind of prose? You know, you don't see that in other styles of video game. I mean, I when I was writing, um, I learned very quickly that if you have someone recording, you have to chop up lines a very distinct way, which is something you don't have to worry about as much when you're writing in prose. You can actually just swap out sentences. You don't have to worry about chopping up someone midline and have different inflections of a voice because the reader will always interpret the line the correct way. Um, whereas a voice actor may inflect up or down and completely wreck the reading of your line. Yep. Give you that sort of phone tree effect where, hi, thanks for calling movie phone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you're kind of at the whim of the audio engineer um, and the voice artist, whereas the writers can do whatever they want. Um, and speaking of wordplay, there's there's things that interactive fiction can do just with the English language that you would never be able to see in any other genre. A game I like think really typifies this is another one by Emily Short, because she's amazing, um, called Counterfeit Monkey. Um, it's not one that I've played to completion, although I've played around with it a little bit. And uh, Counterfeit Monkey is a game where all of the puzzles are based on quirks of the English language. So for example, um, you have uh, tools that can add and remove letters from the names of things. And by changing the name of an object, you change it into what it's now named. So you can actually like change one object into another by- Oh, so it's counterfeit money. Exactly, just, uh -huh. but counterfeit monkey. Um, there's uh, the all of the puzzles of the game are based around mashing the English language. Uh, it, people, it, it's been described as portal for English. Oh, that's fun. So I've played a lot of games from the interactive fiction competition. I try to make a point of playing them every year. Like um, I'll recommend last year had Creatures Such As We, which is a sort of moon dating simulation. Oh, really we play a play tour that. guide on a lunar base. Uh, it's quite great. Um, but I also appreciate a lot of the blended games where they take the heart of interactive fiction and they add a little bit of graphics to it. Although at the heart, it really is that um, choose your decision, uh, choose your own adventure, um, pick something genre. So there's one that I played 
in the last year called King of Dragon Pass, which is actually from 1999. Um, it is a game that you are a head of a barbarian clan. Your first decision in the game is to uh, decide on the lore of your people. So you get to choose which gods you worshipped thousands of years ago, who you decided to sacrifice to, what your terrible decision were, how you treated dragons when they arrived in your camp. Um, and then you play a pseudo-RPG as a leader of your camp. But the thing that makes this actually interactive fiction is you're greeted with a paragraph or two of text about a specific problem in your clan, and then you have a decision to make. Um, and you can pull your the people in your clan. There's a little bit of resource management. But the heart of the game is someone comes to you with a problem. Which decision will you make? And then from then on, the game changes to reflect the decision you made. You either get more cattle, more resources. Um, it's a bit of a blended game because 90% of it is text. But you can also decide to change a bit of how the story flows depending on if you invest you know, 10 cattle um, for peacemaking or 10 cattle uh, you give to another clan to support you as an ally in war. So it is at the heart an interactive fiction game, but it blends it with a bit of the civilization um, town management game. I find it a oh. really intriguing mix. Um, it's usually about 10 bucks on iOS. Um, I think also it's on desktop. I mean, I'm sure it was made in 1989. Mm -hmm. um, but it's super hard. You should read the manual. There's a short and long game version of it. Um, I've played the short completion, and I'm in the middle of a long game. The thing that I think makes it an interactive fiction is that it's so immersive. Even when you pull your clansmen, they answer in text. They don't, there's no narration. Um, you can ask, for example, the healer what they think. But the entire game is based on your decisions as a leader. Well, that's fascinating. That's kind of it's, a, and it's sort of in a fantasy world with dragons and and yet you have to kind of be mayor. That's uh, <laughs> You're essentially the mayor of a barbarian clan. You can talk to your council, but ultimately it's up to you. I think my favorite representative decision is um, a woman comes to you and has been impregnated by the town rogue. Do you make him marry her? Do you decide to kill him? Do you just say, eh, it's a personal decision? Those kind of decisions decide who you are as a townsperson and also... Are you a big government barbarian or a small government barbarian? <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's a much more... It, it's a nice blend of the sandbox and the choose-your-own-adventure genre. Um, and the other blended game, um, which goes a tiny bit back to Darkroom, is a game called Echo Bazaar. Um, it's actually been renamed Fall in London. Those games are interchangeable. But... Um, it is a browser game that's been around for years. Um, it is one of those games where you have a certain amount of daily actions. It is in a world where London has essentially become an alternate steampunk universe. It has uh, fallen. There's references to the fourth city, the second city. Um, it is so far removed from what we know. Um, they call it the Neath is that it has physically fallen underground. Hmm. Um, you get to play um, 
a person of no importance at the beginning. You start off in prison and you break out um, and you start exploring these different areas. What makes it a little different from interactive fiction is you can physically move locations. It is browser-based. You can actually get some graphical interface. But the heart is you pick a card, you get a little bit of flavor text, and then you can choose one of um, several actions. And depending on the type of person you've become, you might succeed or fail. You get a percentage of failure. For example, um, I am currently a very persuasive person. I have a chance to talk my way out of things. I'm not very dangerous. If I decide to shoot, I'm not going to do as well. So as you create your character, you'll level up. It has a lot of RPG elements, but its heart is really this environment. There are so many mysteries. It's completely free to play. Um, and they have what they call a civilized social media policy, which is that you can log in through Twitter or Facebook um, but it will only use those if you want to invite your friends to play with you. Um, I played a little bit of this game a little recently. It was pretty impressive. Very well built. Yeah, I've played it for about five years. Wow. I have, I have, I've never heard of it until just now. And uh, doing some quick stealthy Googling, I noticed that it has a sequel coming out in February of 2015. Um, it has a... The um, producers, Fail Better Games, who are huge advocates for interactive fiction, have made a um, desktop game called Sunless Sea, if that's what you're talking about as a sequel. Oh, I guess so, yes. Yeah, Sunless is Sea is seeing. currently in beta on Steam. Um, it is, there's a part, if you get to level 80 on some parts, where you can start sailing the seas and branching out of, um, you can sail the Untersee out of Fall London. Um, this world is incredibly deep and rich, um, but you and you decide to become a Zaylor on the Enter Z. <laughs> With a Z, there. there's a lot of puns. Um, uh, eventually, uh, you get to a point where um, you could branch into the sequel, which is Sunless Sea. It's a complete game of voyaging. We're actually a person who starts on one of the islands. Um, as I said, it's an incredibly rich game. Um, there's mysteries of spycraft. Um, I am a person of some importance, um, which means that I've reached level 100 on a many of the characteristics. But wow. um, it's one of those games that you play a tiny bit every day, but the narrative starts seeping into the way you think. Um, as a writer, you can get very um, into the tiny bits of dialogue, the little bits of nuance, and um, even on the side when you're playing a game, They'll, where normally you'd have a pop-up ad, there'll be a rhyming couplet about like the starveling cat, the starveling cat, where is he, he ate your hat. What on earth does that little bit of text have anything to do with the game? I'm still not sure after five years, <laughs> but I know that that flavor feels intrinsic to the game. Um, and I will also say that um, the game is financed through what they call a fate system. You can donate to the game and get points where you can unlock more stories. It's not required to play the game, though. Only if you really want to burn through, do a lot of actions at once, if you really want to see everything in the story. But if you want to play for free, I did for many years. I started giving money because I loved the game so much. But Well, this sounds like a must-play. I was really impressed with it when I tried it myself. Oh, it's, it's definitely a must-play. 
Um, the escapist, if you guys, um, follow that magazine, huge fan. I believe it's been written up in a few other places. Um, like the New Yorker called it the best browser game for what that's worth. Um, but, uh, it's grown so much and I've been around since it's started almost. It's a huge game and uh, I've only, I'm still not near the end and I've been playing for five years. Is there an end? Do you think there is no end? They continually develop it. Um, there are things that your character can grow into like an ambition, um, big, huge meta stories that require huge resources to pull off. Um, and I mean, I've, I'm at maybe 100 level 130 on most of my characteristics. Currently, the cap is 200. Wow. So it's enormous. And that contrasts with most of the interactive fiction that we talked about, because most of these games are shorter, small experiences. Um, I, I would say that most of them are things that you could probably play in a couple of days, whereas this is something that just takes that and extends it to the level of a, you know, this is the world of Warcraft of interactive fiction. You will play for under 20 minutes a day as long as you want, normally under five minutes. And there's something to be said about that kind of world that rewards people who dip in more often. I'll definitely check it out. It's really fun. Right now there's an advent calendar where if you follow them on Twitter, the developers, and you click on a link, you get interesting little weird things like I got a cat in the box. (laughs) <laughs> that I could pass the cat. It would unwrap a single layer, pass it on to another player. At some point, they're going to run out of um, layers and the cat will scratch and jump on someone in the face. Hopefully it's not me. Um, <laughs> weird. It's that kind of silly weirdness that is really fun and um, odd. Cool game. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the legacy of of classic IF because there are a lot of things that I think kind of branched out of it. Reagan, you just mentioned like you, you kind of casually mentioned uh, World of Warcraft. Well, I think I see a direct line to games like that because we had the original Infocom parser IF and then we had online MUDs and then we have World of Warcraft. And there's lots of other genres that have either directly or indirectly been kind of a, a follow from those original super influential games. Mm-hmm. Things like puzzle games generally, um, interactive uh, visual novels. The point-and-click adventure game genre. Yeah. Which was sort of the direct oh, that's the from That was the, the direct sequel. Yeah, the original games like um, Day of the Tentacle uh, were games where across the bottom of the screen you had the nouns and verbs that you would have been typing on a non-graphical game. And there's more and more coming up through Kickstarter. Um, for example, I ordered a copy of a game called Icebound, um, where I will get a compendium novel, one of those feelies. Um, I can play the game on the computer, and um, it's about a... I, mean, I haven't played it yet because I've Kickstarted it, um, but from what I understand, I will be playing a researcher trying to find out what happened in an Antarctic research station, and I have a copy of a half-done manuscript and I have an AI. And so between the two of those objects, I must reconstruct the narrative. Um, I'm talking to an AI on the computer, very much like a text-based adventure game, but I also have a feely where I can scan pages of the book to give the AI more information. And the number of pages I choose to scan will influence how my novel about this experience comes out. So I think people are really experimenting with the interactive fiction 
genre right now because they're using things like cameras, uh, scanner technology that weren't around. At the heart, it's still that feely that came in the box with the floppy disk. Yeah. And there's still people producing games that really fall into the very specific styles that go back all the way to the 80s, the parser-based interactive fiction, these hypertext and other sort of branching narrative-based things um, created with tools like Inform and Twine and other things that are still really vibrant. Um, Let's talk about some of the resources, places people can go if they're interested in trying some of these games and they want more information or they want to choose a game to play. Um, or they want to learn a little bit how to, about how to play. The first thing I'd point people to would probably be the IFDB, which we already talked about. It's an amazing resource, but it's also a little overwhelming. It's kind of like going on uh, the IMDB and trying to figure out, well, what's a good movie to watch? I've never seen a movie before. Which, uh, which movie here on the IMDB should I watch? There's a lot of there's some garbage out there, but that's true of any genre that has some experiment where experimentation is happening. Yeah, there's over 7000 games on the interactive fiction database. So if you're looking for a good place to start, um, we did mention some of those games earlier. Uh, I'll also put some links in the show notes to other games that you might be interested in trying out. But probably the best place to get a sense of what games are well regarded and are really interesting would be IF Comp the interactive fiction competition. It's one of actually three or four different competitions for interactive fiction that happen every year. Uh, IF Comp uh, allows anybody to submit their interactive fiction, all forms of interactive fiction, parser-based things, uh, you know, choice-based, you know, hypertext games, all sorts of things. Uh, the only requirement is that the games be primarily text-driven um, and that they be available to play. I think it requires that they be available to play for free. And then... Anybody who likes can play usually these dozens of games that are submitted and then make votes on which ones they think are worth playing. And they have a records of the, of the results of that voting going all the way back over 10 years. So you can scan through that and get a really good sense of what games are worth checking out. Uh, and almost all of them will have a link to download or play the game right there from the IF Comp website. Is that the... Uh... Zizzy Awards, X, Y, Z, Z, Y? No, actually, that's something else. Um, there's several sort of competitions. Uh, the IF Comp is probably the biggest one, or it's the one that I follow the closest. There's also something called Spring Thing. I don't follow that one quite as closely, but it's another parallel uh, interactive fiction competition. I'll put a link for that one in the show notes as well, and that's another place to look if you're interested in just sort of seeing which games are well-regarded or popular. Um or certainly at least award-winning. Uh, I don't really know what the difference is in format between that and IF Comp. Uh, another, uh, another site you can check out is the Zizzy Awards, X-Y-Z-Z-Y. Yeah, that's a, that's a reference to Zork. There's a, a uh, magic word in Zork that is X-Y-Z-Z-Y, which is pretty much unpronounceable, unless you want to call it Zizzy. Pretty close. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a... It's a uh, a reference that you see all the time in interactive fiction. So don't be surprised when you run into that. I will say, I think spring thing is for generally longer works. So if you're looking for the real short games, interactive fiction, I found tends to be on the shorter side, although it's a little more open and ZZ games are shorter. Spring thing is really focused on those longer, more immersive works. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking to really delve in spring things, better bet for you might not be good. If you're trying to just dip your toe in the water. Yeah. 
But a lot of the games that we've talked about have won the IF comp or at least placed in the high, you know, high placements in the past. Uh, I know that Andrew Plotkin has won uh, IF comp. I think he won it with Spider and Web. Um, and if you go back all those 10 years, it's all the best stuff. So anything I would say that falls in the first five or so places on IF comp is definitely worth your time to play. So scan through it and see what looks interesting to you. Another thing you might want to check out would be uh, there's some really good how to play guides uh, from a couple of different sites. The People's Republic of Interactive Fiction, which is a Boston-based interactive fiction club or interest group, uh, has a page with some really good resources and a really great sort of visual card that you can sort of print out and stick next to your monitor. That uh, Andrew Plotkin's a member of that group, and they've created some really good resources for new players, kind of describing the types of things you might type in an interactive fiction game based on a parser. So a really good resource there. And another one would be the Brass Lantern beginners page. Brass Lantern is a page about interactive fiction generally. They're a, a website that's got an interesting blog and some other resources, but they have a really good beginners page that uh, tells you a little bit about the history of interactive fiction and uh, how to play and recommends some games, gives you links to some popular and well-regarded games. Um, one problem you'll find there is that it hasn't been updated very recently, so some of the links on that page are a little bit out of date. Uh, for example, it'll link you to a page called uh, Bath's Guide to the Interactive Fiction Archive, which unfortunately is down. And if that was still up, it would be the site I would recommend as your first stop. It was an amazing website that um, was a very curated guide to what to try if you're interested in, uh, in interactive fiction and with links to the Interactive Fiction Archive. But as the IF archive has gotten better and given more resources for somebody just visiting and looking to check out something interesting, um, Bath's Guide wasn't updated quite as much. It was the website that really gave me the intro that I had to interactive fiction. Unfortunately, it's no longer, it's no longer up. Um, but you'll, you'll still see links to it, unfortunately, all over the web, and uh, then they'll just go to a 404. Sad reminders. Mm-hmm. Oh, another one would be Rock Paper Shotgun, which is my favorite website for just PC gaming news generally. Um, they do a really great job of covering interactive fiction right alongside all the other types of games that they cover. So they'll talk about Twine games. They'll have articles uh, by interactive fiction authors. Uh, they cover the IF comp every year. So if you happen to be reading there already, you may have seen some of this stuff and thought, what is this game? That looks weird. These screenshots look really boring. Well, take a look. They have some amazing articles about interactive fiction. I'll also say that um, the developer of Echo Bazaar slash Fall in London, Feel Better Games, has an excellent blog where one of the tags they talk about often is narrative-driven games. Um, they have two tags. One is on narrative and one is just on snippets they like where they grab pieces of text from games that they want to highlight. They might not necessarily be interactive fiction games, but since they are such a writing-driven workshop, they really celebrate um, narrative and storytelling in games. Um, that's where I first found King of Dragon Pass, which was um, echoed by Touch Arcade, which is a uh, resource I go to often. But um, those that uh, little bit of snippet has pointed me towards a lot of developers who think story-driven even if they may not be technically in the genre. So in order to play a lot of these games, you will need something called an interactive fiction interpreter. This is mainly the 
parser if. Yeah, that's true. A lot of the uh, a lot of the what was it you were calling them? Storylit, story storylit, storylit mm-hmm. games. Uh, or you know you might see things in this sort of wheelhouse called like hypertext interactive fiction or choice choose your own adventure based stuff. Those tend to be browser based, I think. A lot of them are browser-based, or they'll have their own app, their own application. But, mm-hmm. uh, but traditionally, because of the way that Infocom did things, uh, parser-based games tend to run in an interpreter. But traditionally, back in the 80s, it made a lot of sense for these parser-based interactive fiction games like Infocom games to run in an interpreter because they had to run on so many different types of computers. Um, so Infocom would develop a game once and then make Infocom game interpreters called Z-Machine interpreters for all the different computers that they would run in. Um, and that has sort of traditionally persisted even to today, where if you're making a game using these parser-based IF tools like Inform, uh, then it's probably not going to run as its own application. It's going to run as a file run inside of an interactive fiction interpreter. And there are interactive fiction interpreters available for basically everything that you can play games on, basically anything with a keyboard, really. Um, so we already mentioned Frots, F-R-O-T-Z, for iOS. Uh, that's a really, really nice one. And actually, in some ways, I prefer playing these types of games on, games on my iPhone to playing them on other platforms. Um, but if you're playing on the Mac, there's a couple of very popular ones. Uh, one's called Zoom uh, and another one called Gargoyle. Um, both of those work with most interactive fiction games. If it doesn't work in one, it'll work in the other. And if you're looking at a game on the IF archive, usually there'll be some notes there about how to play the game. So you'll probably need one or the other, Gargoyle or Zoom. There's also Froths for Windows, uh, as well as I think Zoom for Windows. Um, We'll have some links in the show notes to some common interpreters, or at least a page where some of them are listed. And the fact is that a lot of the big name games, the kind of games you'd be wanting to play as you're starting off, are going to be playable in a browser somewhere, and you'll probably find a link when you research them. Mm-hmm. The other thing we should mention about this would be because these games are so sparse, some of them really will require you to get out paper and a pencil and make a map and sort of be methodical about taking notes and otherwise keeping track of the game. I know, for example, the game I'm playing right now, uh, which is called Hadean Lands, and it's awesome, by the way, but it's it's a little more advanced, so it's one that I ne- wouldn't necessarily recommend as anybody's first interactive fiction. Uh, Hadean Lands is a very complex game with really intricate, interesting, fascinating puzzles. It's another game from... Uh, uh, from Andrew Plotkin. It's available for the iPhone, or you can buy it to run on your Mac or PC from his website. It's just five bucks. Definitely recommend it, 100%. Um, but right now, I have uh, a map with a bunch of annotations, plus about maybe 15 or 20 pages of notes in Evernote just about this game, keeping track of all of the puzzles I've already solved, all of the puzzles I'm trying to solve, all of the items. It's a very complex game. So you should be prepared for some of these games to require you to take notes and you know listen actively and make maps the kind of things that you could imagine a little kid doing back in the 80s playing through one of these games you will still need to do that stuff today well other than haiti and lands are there any games we've forgotten i forgot to mention one that um actually i think it won times game of the year in 2014 this year oh what really um it's called um 80 days it's around the world in 80 days Oh. It's the title. Um, and it's uh, 
steampunk. Uh, it is, uh, you are playing Phineas Fogg. You are choosing your own route around the globe. Um, you can go by mechanical camel. You can go by <laughs> airship. You can go by steam train. You're racing other players around a, the clock. Um, it's an interactive novel. Um, I played it on iOS um, and really enjoyed it. There's a lot of different cities you can explore, and it is conversation-based. So although you're doing things like climbing mountains and riding said mechanical camel, um, really the it is very, very seeped in interactive fiction. Um, I don't know if you remember the electric company's uh, ads where there'd be, you know, dog, cat, cat dog, where there's two heads talking to each other. That's what this game reminded me of. You can have silhouettes of people chatting with each other. Um, but like a lot of the games you've talked about, although you might tap a city and open it, then you're having a conversation with someone, you're choosing what's next. Um, it is literally an interactive novel. It is a different way to explore the, J the Jules Verne book. Um, I found it extremely intriguing and I found the race against the clock um, aspect to propel me through the narrative much faster than I think hmm. it would have. Because at the end of the day, you do have to get all the way around the world in 80 days, just like the novel. But it opens it up a lot more. Wow. Um, I think it's phenomenal. That's that sounds awesome. really cool. Another game, while we're talking about interesting games in the genre that we hadn't gotten a chance to talk about yet, um, in my notes I wanted to mention um, uh, Blood and Laurels, another one by Emily Short. I know we keep going back to her. She's a rock star. Um, she had a, a project with Linden Labs. That's the company that developed um, uh, Second Life, where they were creating a tool for creating interactive fiction called Versu. Um, and initially it was planned as this whole uh, product on its own where you'd be able to uh, download and use it to create your own games or you'd be able to uh, play a variety of games in the Versu system. Uh, Linden Labs then kind of shut down the project, but Emily Short was able Much to Much like of everything take it over. from Linden Labs, it didn't pay off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're a weird company. But um but Versu is a really cool new approach that I would kind of say is a it's a combination of the two styles of games that we've talked about already. It's a choose-your-own-adventure style thing, but with a lot more interacti interactivity than those types of games usually present you with. And the one game that's out in this genre is Blood and Laurels, and so far it's only playable on the iPad. Um, but essentially the way it works is you're playing as a poet in ancient Rome, and you're playing out a scenario where your patron uh, asks you to do something very dangerous, and you have to make a lot of choices about whether you're going to do it and how you're going to do it. But the way it plays out is fascinating. Uh, it reads you, or it, you read one paragraph or even as little as one sentence of this story at a time. And at almost any moment in between paragraphs of this narrative, you can jump in and take an action. Um, so most of these choose your own adventure style games, they'll read out a page or two or, you know, several paragraphs, and then they'll give you two or three choices. This is a game that gives you sometimes as many as a dozen choices after almost every line. And some of the choices are really major, like they give you the option to storm out and leave at almost any moment in almost any conversation. Uh, or some of them are really simple, like uh, what type of expression you want to put on your face or uh, just kind of expressing 
how you think your character is reacting. And it also keeps very close statistical models of how all the other characters have responded to you so far. So it's yeah. much more interactive than most of these types of games turn out to be. Really a amazing, cool game. Definitely recommend it if you have an iPad. When the Versu app first came out, I did get a chance to try one of the sort of uh, demos that came with it, uh, which was a recreation of uh, a scene from a Jane Austen novel. And what I found really interesting about it was the kind of simulation of all of the different characters' emotions. And in this one that I played, I don't know if all the games with Versu are like this, it had uh, illustrations for a lot of the characters mm -hmm. that helped you keep track of uh, their facial expressions and just sort of of the environment you're in generally without being too uh, prescriptive about how you, how you play or, or how you see the world around you. It wasn't like an adventure game in the traditional sense where you know or, or a, or a uh, where you're you know tapping on things to collect items or anything it was very much in the style of an interactive fiction um, kind of conversational type game with a sort of a light dusting of art to keep your eye you know delighted it's a technical marvel that's absolutely wonderful there's a board game um, called marrying mr darcy um, that I've been trying to get someone to play with. <laughs> no one will play it because I am surrounded by dudes who don't believe that they should immerse themselves in Jane Austen. But I, I feel like the the if the board game's anything like that game, um, it's got to be a really interesting mix of uh, role playing in the fiction and seeing that worlds come to life through the illustrations. You know, it's been a while since I played it, but I'm pretty sure that it was uh, kind of the um, the pivotal scene with Mr. Darcy that was the one that they simulated in this. So you should definitely check it out. Um, I don't know if that app is still available um, because I know that that was released by Linden Labs before it was, that was sort of there as a teaser of what the Versu system was intended to accomplish. And I think that app got taken down when, uh, when Linden Labs canned the project. So your only option to play this may be Blood and Laurels until hopefully Emily Short and her uh, cohort uh, release more material. But it's such a technical marvel, and it's the kind of thing that I think it's I think it's where interactive fiction is going to be going if it continues to get more complex and uh, and incorporate more interesting technology. I mean, what Jane was talking about with the little character portraits, it's so amazing. You'll be sitting at a dinner party in this game, speaking to four or five other characters. All of them have their own distinct emotional state. And you know why they have that emotional state. Because when you said something earlier in the dinner party, it offended one person and it amused another person. And you see all of their faces as you're reading this story. You can tap on any one of their faces and get a, a little in-depth description of like, so-and-so uh, was offended by your comment earlier. They don't think that you're very intelligent. Uh, that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. It's it's a it's an absolutely marvelous system. I can't wait to see more games released that use this Versu system. It's another thing that's different about it is, I think you touched on this a little bit, but it's a big difference between any of these other games, is that it's not um, waiting for your input all the time like most of these interactive fiction games are. They present you with a choice, and then you make a decision. This is a style of game uh, on these and where things will happen uh, if you do nothing. Doing nothing will just, the story will move along and you'll sit silently in the corner. There's 
most actions start with a big act now button yeah. at the bottom of the screen. And you have to pick not only uh, when to act, but what to do. So obviously we've talked about all sorts of different games under the big headline of interactive fiction. It's a, it's a broad tent. In some sense, you can think of almost any game as being interactive fiction. But, but if our listeners are taking anything away from this episode, it's that don't be scared off by these... Excuse me. But if our listeners take anything away from this episode, I hope it's that don't be scared off by these primarily text-driven games. There are a lot of really awesome experiences to be had, things that will bring things to you that you've never seen in a video game before. This is probably an episode where I really encourage you to take a close look at our show notes. I'm gonna do our best to make sure that every single thing we've talked about today gets a link in the show notes. So check out our show notes, which people can find at www.theshortgame.net, of course. You can also follow us on Twitter, and uh, we'd be happy to answer any questions, or if you've played an interactive fiction game that you think is really cool, we want to hear about it, because I've played one one hundredth of one percent of the things in this genre that I want to. So uh, if you have questions or comments, or if you want to recommend an interactive fiction game to us, write to us at underscore short game. I've been your host, Reagan, and I'm on Twitter as well. I'm at Reagan K, R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. And uh, Shane, where can people find you? You can find me also on Twitter, uh, at 8BitShane. And Laura. I'm at Laura J. Nash. And if you are playing Fall in London, you can send me Christmas cards this month. Awesome. (laughs) That's a thing. This is our final episode in 2014. And it's been a really exciting year for the short game, our first year. We're coming uh, to the end of our 2014 season, if you will. And uh, you can expect there to be a bit of a gap in your feed, but we'll be seeing you again uh, early in 2015. With fabulous new exciting worlds to explore. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, that, okay. (laughs) 